Across the Middle East, girls suffer beatings, shaming, and stifling restrictions. They're restricted in their freedom to go to school, voice their opinions, or wear what they want. But a Christian media project aims to spotlight their plight and give them a voice. We'll give you all the details coming up. Hey, welcome again to The Land and the Book from Moody Radio. We're about to take off for the Middle East. As always, our pilot is Dr. Charlie Dyer, who is the ultimate frequent flyer with more than 100 trips to Israel. Sitting in the uh, co-pilot's chair, I'm John Geiger. And you know, once this program is over, Charlie and I wonder, where do you turn for more content about Israel, the Bible, and sharing the gospel with Jewish people? Well, Life and Messiah have been focused recently on producing high-quality video content on their YouTube channel. Engaging videos are being released twice a week related to these important topics, and we encourage you to check out their content, which will be inspiring and uplifting. Now, as a special for Land and the Book listeners, if you visit lifeinmessiah.org and click on the Moody Radio button, you can get a sneak peek at one of their upcoming videos and subscribe to their channel. That's lifeinmessiah.org, and then click on the Moody Radio button. All right, let's swing our focus toward current events, things happening this week in the Middle East. Israel struggling politically and socially. Secular versus religious Jews, Palestinian terrorists versus militant Jewish settlers. We've got gang wars in both Jewish and Arab communities. And in between all this chaos are the police and soldiers trying to keep it from spiraling out of control. Can the country stop the violence and regain control? You know, John, they are struggling, like many other countries, and in fact, including our own. But rather than searching for ways to compromise, the secular Jews and the ultra-Orthodox Jews are each pushing for their own agenda to the exclusion of the others. It involves everything from housing to social programs to military exemptions for religious studies. Each side has a vision for what Israel ought to be that the other side simply can't accept. The conflict between the Palestinians and Israelis has also escalated. Palestinian militants have attacked and murdered numerous Israeli civilians in the West Bank. In response, armed Israeli vigilantes have gone into Arab villages, setting fire to houses and cars and fields. Now, I need to stop here and say the problem is that both sides doing this are wrong. Thankfully, only a small minority are involved on either side, but they're raising tensions to the boiling point. And having a cabinet minister like Ben Gavir issue a call to launch an operation to take the land, demolish Arab buildings, and eliminate, as he put it, not one or two, but tens and hundreds, and if necessary, even thousands, is a reckless call to open warfare. Hmm. Now, this growing sense of lawlessness isn't just between Jews and Arabs. Gang violence in both communities is on the rise. Uh, the number of Arabs murdered by Arabs has skyrocketed this year as different criminal gangs fight one another. So far, more than 100 have been killed this year. That's more than double what the number was last year. The same thing's happening on the Jewish side, though not quite to the same extent. Now, with all the violence, the military and police are stretched thin. They're trying to protect Israelis from Palestinian terrorists, while also trying to stop Jewish vigilantes from attacking innocent Palestinians, and trying to insert themselves between the different Jewish groups who are fighting one another. Uh, and they're trying to do all of that without appearing to come down too hard on those not directly involved in the violence, and that's not an enviable position. Stopping the violence is going to require some radical steps that have to start at the very top. Prime Minister Netanyahu and Palestinian Authority President Abbas need to do more to crack down on the violence. 
Israel's government needs to move away from the religious extremism and search for ways to get all sides to compromise. Uh, If the Israelis and Palestinians can't rein in that violence, John, the area could be in for some very difficult days. Charlie, what does all this say about uh, tourism right now? Is it impacting that in any way? Right now, it is not impacting tourism. Both sides, and in fact, all the sides in this conflict are struggling with one another, but they all seem to like the tourist dollar. So at least so far, uh, there hasn't been an impact on tourism. Well, Israel also continues to struggle over plans for judicial reform. The compromise talks sponsored by President Herzog broke down when the opposition walked away. And this week, the coalition began moving forward on plans to change the law unilaterally. What is the latest? Well, the Law and Justice Committee convened to begin discussions of a law to limit judicial review based on the, quote, reasonableness of government or ministerial decisions. Right now, Israel's judiciary, including their Supreme Court, can strike down a law or rule simply because they see it as being unreasonable, even if it doesn't violate any specific law or statute. In essence, it gives the judiciary veto power over the legislation. The problem is that the legislation as initially proposed right now would reverse the problem by giving the Knesset power to push through legislation that could trample on the rights of minorities and yet still be considered technically legal. But rather than searching for a compromise, which is what President Herzog was trying to do, the opposition parties walked away from the talks, and that's why the coalition placed the legislation back on the docket. An organization representing veterans of elite military intelligence units said they will no longer volunteer if the law passes. Uh, They were followed by a group representing hundreds of military doctors who said they won't volunteer, and still another group called for passive resistance, uh, doing things like snarling traffic and blocking access to Ben Gurion Airport. Now, these opposition groups are trying to blackmail the government into agreeing to their position or risk harming Israel's economy or its ability to defend itself militarily. Uh, What's happening is political brinkmanship, with each side threatening to cross red lines that the other believes could harm the very nature of the country itself. Uh, We need to hope that the leaders there rise above partisan politics and look for ways to lead the country forward. Otherwise, the country could find itself paralyzed, and its enemies might see that as a sign of weakness and look for ways to attack. Charlie, this seems so entrenched. There seems no possibility for any ultimate change at all. Am I being too cynical? No, you're not. Uh, that's that's really the problem. The, the, each side knows that there's a problem. Each side knows it can't go too far. And yet each side, is, certainly the political leaders, are unwilling to say we need to compromise, we need to talk with the other side, with few exceptions. Uh, Gantz and Herzog are the two who really are coming out of this uh, looking like political statesmen. Uh, but we're not seeing that from many of the others. Well, in some positive news, researchers at Tel Aviv University used RNA nanodrug technology to stop ovarian cancer cell division. What have they discovered, Charlie, and how soon might that be available medically, particularly here in the U.S.? You know, this could be a major discovery that would come out of amazing Israel. Uh, Ovarian cancer is the fifth deadliest malignancy in women. The major problem is that symptoms often go unnoticed until the cancer has reached advanced stages and metastasized. Uh, The researchers discovered that a specific protein causes the uncontrolled cell division. They targeted metastasized ovarian cancer cells with lipid nanoparticles containing RNA to silence that protein. The technique caused the metastasized cells to cease dividing and resulted in an 80% survival rate in the mice that they were using with this cancer. Apparently, this RNA nanodrug only targeted the cancer cells, 
without impacting surrounding cells. Hmm. Uh, Working with a company in California, the scientists are hoping to begin human trials in two to three years. Now, they'll first focus on acute myeloid leukemia, another cancer, but that will be followed closely by ovarian cancer. So hopefully, a way to manage and possibly cure both diseases could be just over the horizon. And John, you know, when that comes, we'll need to thank those researchers at Tel Aviv University in amazing Israel. Let's talk for a moment about biting camels and migrating miracles. Sounds like two of the more offbeat stories out of Israel this week. What are the details behind both of these headlines? Yeah, well, the camel story comes right from the top of the Mount of Olives. Uh, there's a fellow there, and you and I both know him, with a camel who tries to get tourists to pay for a ride. In fact, we saw him there on our last trip. Now, the fellow that's there, uh, he's relatively new, and he's more aggressive than the former individual who was there. Now, I was surprised, John, when we were there, that he was walking the camel through the middle of the groups down below rather than staying up where the buses drop off the passengers. Mm-hmm. Evidently, he was doing this last week when his camel brushed into a group of tourists uh, and uh, against one of them specifically from Canada, and the camel bit her. Uh, the lesson <laughs> wow. for those going to Israel is never assume those camels are friendly or tame. Uh, watch out for them. Uh, the migrating miracle, uh, that relates to a debate over the location of Bethsaida up by the Sea of Galilee. Uh, in trying to establish the one place called El Araj as the correct site for Bethsaida, a New Testament professor has proposed a, a rather bizarre theory. Since El Araj in Arabic means lame man, he's claiming that the miracle by the pool of Bethesda in Jerusalem in John 5 is a scribal error, and that the miracle really took place at biblical Bethsaida by the Sea of Galilee. And since the man was lame, uh, that's what's preserved in the Arabic name for the site. Now, uh, there are two major problems with this theory. First, John 5 identifies the location by saying in verse 2, now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool. You know, it puts the miracle there, not by the Sea of Galilee. Right. And second, the overwhelming majority of manuscript evidence has Bethesda or Bethzatha in John 5. Uh, that's an area north of the temple in Jerusalem. It doesn't have Bethsaida in Galilee, except in a minority of manuscripts. Now, this is a case of a theory going in search of facts and unfortunately not finding them really in the Bible. Well, that's our look at current events. Lots more to come in today's program. Charlie's going to answer some Bible questions. He's got a devotional. But our next segment takes us to the Middle East for what sounds like a depressing story. Girls who are being restricted in their freedom to go to school, voice their opinions, uh, restricted in their clothing. But there is an upside to all of that as a Christian ministry is stepping in with a very interesting media project. You want to stick around for more here on The Land and the Book from Moody Radio. In Iran, there are an estimated 700,000 child-age mothers. In Egypt, teenage girls are beaten if they get bad grades. Throughout the Middle East, girls are shamed and abused. But one ministry is making a difference. They're using satellite technology, and we'll tell you all about it next. Hey, thanks for connecting with The Land and the Book. I'm John Geiger, inviting you to think creatively with me about how we can impact Muslim friends and co-workers for Christ. Here's what I mean. When you're truly serious about sharing Jesus with your Jewish friends, you're going to run into some obstacles, some objections. Among them, the New Testament is an anti-Semitic Gentile document. Is that true? Let's ask Levi Hazen, Executive Director of Life in Messiah. Well, John, I've come across this objection before, and I like to respond by asking our Jewish friends, 
who make this claim, have you read the New Testament yourself? Mm. Most Jewish people are surprised to see just how Jewish it actually is. Matthew's first chapter begins with a list of Jewish names, as the Messiah's genealogy is traced back to Abraham. Now, the New Testament does contain some harsh criticisms, but these are typically between the various religious groups of Jesus' day who were all Jewish. These were Jewish people arguing with and being critical of or even carrying out violence against other Jewish people. You know, there was a rabbi, Yechiel Lichtenstein, uh, from the 1800s, who was initially not a fan of Christianity or the New Testament. He said this about the New Testament after he finally decided to read it. I had thought the New Testament to be impure, a source of pride, of selfishness, of hatred, and the worst kind of violence. But as I opened it, I felt myself wonderfully taken possession of. But what an interesting reaction. And we'll check in again with Levi Hazen, Executive Director of Life in Messiah. Dr. Rex Rogers is an author, speaker, and president of Sat7 North America, the American arm for Sat7. That's a satellite television ministry broadcasting Christian programming into Arabic, Farsi, Dari, and Turkish. They reach across seven time zones into 25 countries in the Middle East and North Africa, as well as many countries in Europe. Dr. Rogers and his wife Sarah have four adult children. Sarah serves with Women at Risk International, traveling and speaking on behalf of women and children who've been victims of human trafficking. The conversation always goes by too quickly when we have Dr. Rogers on, so welcome back to the land of the book, sir. Thank you. Glad to be here. Well, SAT7 has a new five-year project aiming to free women and girls and challenge unjust beliefs and practices. What does this project look like from a media content perspective? What are these unjust beliefs and practices that they're challenging? Well, it's a big one. It's called Gender Equality and Freedom of Religion and Belief. So the idea of gender equality is connected with religious perspective. And as you know, gender equality is one of those phrases that people can hear and define differently. And sometimes in the West, it means abortion rights and things like that. We don't mean that as Christians, and we don't mean that in the Middle East. But in the Middle East, women are typically considered, I'll just say it this way, second-class citizens. Uh, They're often subjected to gender-based violence and discrimination, certainly verbal abuse even by their parents. You mentioned forced child marriages, domestic violence. I mean, the ugly physical things that we've heard about happens to women and girls. So what we're trying to do in media is to connect with particularly young people, get them to think about their religious perspective and apply it, of course, sharing a Christian perspective in the middle of it, applying their thinking to their attitudes and values and how they look upon women and girls. Well, the new series, Today, Not Tomorrow, which viewers across the Middle East and North Africa region can watch free of charge, is already kind of provoking discussion on social media. What kinds of things are you hearing? Well, uh, people come back. Some people come back and defend what they've experienced from the time they were children. Of course, they've been taught this. This is their culture. They've known nothing else, that the idea that women, you know, they ought to be beaten by their husband from time to time, so they behave that it's okay if fathers mistreat their daughters because, well, he's really trying to help them be a better person. So they've learned to, in a sense of self-protection, to come back with these sort of defensive comments. There are others, of course, who immediately recognize that, yes, this is a vast problem. And by the way, it happens in Christian communities and Christian homes too, unfortunately and sadly. 
and that this is something that in Egypt in particular is rampant. Today, not tomorrow. That's the ministry we're looking at with Dr. Rex Rogers, president of Sat7 North America. Middle East-based film crews have documented alarming stories of girls across the region who suffer beatings, as we've mentioned, shaming, as well as stifling restrictions on their freedom to go to school, voice their opinions, or wear what they want. I have to ask, what kind of risk are these girls taking even to just allow their stories to be told in such a public way? Well, there's some risk. You see what's happening. I hope the world is watching, Christian community, what's happening in Iran, who are Persians, not Arabs, in a different country. But it's a similar application of religious perspective where women and girls have been subjected to extensive oppression. And now they're trying to protest. And some of them have paid for that in loss of jobs. Some was being beaten up, physically harmed. Some have been killed. And it hasn't stopped yet. We don't know where it's going. In Egypt right now, there is that ability to suppress, if not oppress, women, restrict them legally, restrict them in terms of employment, education, you know, to put basically a corral, a fence around them and keep them in their place. But the cynic in me has to ask, won't these stories largely fall on deaf ears? I mean, if if the people calling the shots in these countries don't see the evil they are propagating as evil, what hope is there? Well, as believers, and I know you feel the same way, it, it goes back to the heart, obviously, and that's what really needs to change, is the evil heart that all of us possess and mm-hmm. the need for Christian teaching and truth that that form of spiritual transformation is the only ultimate answer. Now, that said, with efforts like this where you raise consciousness, to use the phrase, you uh, have people discuss, especially young people who are more open and more tuned into social media, if you get them talking about these things and talking with others who come from different religious backgrounds than themselves, there is a positive that can come out of that as they begin to realize that, hey, what I've been taught was not necessarily the truth, Hmm. and that the idea of them questioning that and finding an alternative, and we'd say truthful perspective, is something that can happen. So it it can happen, and that's what we would pray, that God would allow that to happen and work through uh, the experiences that they're facing right now. Dr. Rex Rogers is an author, speaker, and president of SAT7 North America, reaching across seven time zones into 25 countries in the Middle East and North Africa, as well as into Europe. Hey, tell me a story that's fresh, that's on your mind, that says, wow, this is God at work. This is a story in progress. Well, we get calls every day. Uh, We get, mostly when I say calls, we get contacts through social media. That's the primary form of communication today. And we hear from people, some are asking for prayer, some are saying they haven't seen their son or daughter for a long period of time, or they're expressing uh, their, in Iran, we're hearing a lot of women who are saying, look, we are willing to risk our lives. They've come, they've hit the wall, let me put it that way. And they realize that the only way social change is going to take place is that the world sees what's happening and that they can protest to a certain level of resistance and get others behind them. We've heard men, men will communicate with us and say, I apologize on behalf of men. I didn't realize it was as extensive. I saw a little bit of my own family. I have not done this, but I don't want to ever have it happen ever again, and certainly not to my daughters, and so they'll apologize. So you see those kinds of responses and an openness. I think the Holy Spirit of God 
works in that way to create these moments uh, when eventually then in the problems of God, he reaches individual hearts. In Egypt's capital, Cairo, Africa's largest city, Sat7 spoke to teenage girls who described beatings and verbal abuse from their parents if they got bad grades at school, being forced to do menial chores instead of study, and being shamed for wearing tennis shoes. Does this go on and on because the rest of the world doesn't know about it, or because we don't care enough to somehow intervene? Uh, Maybe both, to be sad and truthful about it, but maybe both. You know, we have such an information overload, and then you hear about conflict and difficulties and suppression, oppression, persecution all over the world. It's thousands of miles away. It's easy to move on with our lives. But these are real circumstances, and these are real situations. And during adversity, trauma like this is when human beings, all of us, ask existential questions. We start to ask more why. Why would God allow this? Is God there? Does he care? Uh, Does he know what's happening to me? What happened to my friend who was beaten and died. And in the context of those existential questions, if Sat7 can share Christian truth and teaching, again, the Spirit of God works. In places such as Afghanistan and Iran, where protests by women and girls continue to make headlines around the world, forced child marriage is rampant. In Iran alone, it's estimated there are 700,000 child-age mothers. Listeners right now, uh, many of them are outraged to hear that statistic, but what do they do? We, we live far away, Rex. Well, often as Christians, we think of prayer as a last resort. It should be our first response. I mean that theologically. I mean that to our challenge and maybe reminder. A prayer does change things, and it is helpful to have a ministry like Sat7 that is region-wide. That's the power of media. Uh, you work in it, you can reach the masses, people that tune in, that we can give a voice, sometimes we say to the voiceless, and therefore our viewers, that these women don't have their their voice amplified in any other way. Hmm. And Sat7 has been around for 28 years now over there, so it's a trusted Middle East entity, even though people know it's Christians from other backgrounds. They know we're Christian, but they tune in because they find... Uh, reinforcement, they find encouragement, they find hope, they find information about who they are in terms of their human rights and democratic process, but also who they are in the eyes of God. They're made in the image of God, women included. This is The Land and the Book, segment two. I'm John Geiger. Our guest, Dr. Rex Rogers, president of Sat7 North America. Uh, Rex, you've gone on record as saying our aim is to show all women and girls they were created in God's image and to make God's love visible to them. Elaborate. Well, that's absolutely the truth. First of all, you're talking about cultures that these women may have reached whatever age, and they've never heard the truth of what you just quoted there, what you said. Hmm. So it's countercultural. It's it's shocking. It breaks through. And so if we're able to communicate that and help them understand that, no, they— They're not what they've been told they are since the time they were old enough to think that God did create women, that God does value women eternally and, of course, temporally now, that they have equality in the eyes of God, that they should have equality in terms of other human beings. It's an eye-opening, heart-opening kind of experience that gives them a sense of purpose, a vision of place, of significance. And then they begin to, again, ask those existential questions I mentioned earlier. And we hope and we believe it does happen through that. They 
seek out answers to their questions. And God always has his remnant. He's got, there are Christian people in all these countries, uh, the worst ones. There's Christian media that we've just mentioned, Sat7 being one. And there's people who are able to reach them uh, and to know that they're praying for them and sometimes finding a secret church. Uh, you never know how God's going to work with individual yeah. lives. And that's an encouraging part of it. Well, how about encouraging us with a success story? Somebody whose life has been changed, a young woman, a teen, a girl who has been impacted by this gospel message of hope. Well, we have people, as I say, on a regular basis, contact us with that kind of uh, thing where, again, an individual called where she is in the process of struggling with a husband who she she loves, uh, she wants to respect, and uh, he's an abuser, he's alcoholic. And she says, in the past, I hate people around me. My heart's been full of hatred. But then now the Lord has given me a new heart and a compassionate one. And she recognizes and says, Jesus Christ changed my life 100%. I have a new heart and a new character. He changed my nature. And now I can help minister to or have a testimony before my husband first and foremost, and then go from there. This is a lady living in northern Algeria. Hmm. Now, does that mean her husband's going to become a wonderful man and a, you know, a Christian tomorrow? Maybe not in the province of God. But she has become a believer, and she has new strength and new hope. I love it. And that's a great place to land this conversation, new strength and new hope. Dr. Rex Rogers, president of SAT7 North America. Always a pleasure to have you on the program, sir. Thank you, John. Coming up, Charlie Dyer. He's got more of your questions about the Bible, prophecy, and the Middle East. That's right here on The Land and the Book. the land of the book from Moody Radio. I'm John Geiger, and if it's been a while since you've said thank you to the management of this station for this program, boy, today would be a great day to do that. Uh, you know, there's a lot of competition out there, but just the idea of thanking this station lets them know that you're getting something out of it. So appreciate your doing that. Charlie, uh, once this program is over, you have to ask yourself, where should we turn for more content about Israel, the Bible, and sharing the gospel with Jewish people? Yeah, and Life and Messiah has been focused recently on producing high-quality video content on their YouTube channel. Engaging videos are being released twice a week related to these important topics, and we encourage you to check out their content, which will be inspiring and uplifting. As a special for Land in the Book listeners, if you visit lifeinmessiah.org and click on the Moody Radio button, you can get a sneak peek at one of their upcoming videos and subscribe to their channel. That's lifeinmessiah.org. And then click on the Moody Radio button. That's Charlie Dyer. I'm John Geiger. This is segment two of The Land and the Book. We've reserved it for questions, your questions. And they're welcome anytime, by the way, as you email us at thelandandthebook at moody.edu. Mark and Marita say, We recently heard that you can visit the burial sites of Mary, the mother of Jesus, and the Apostle John in Ephesus. Is that true? If so, do you know how they ended up there? Yeah, well, actually, there are three traditional burial sites for Mary. Two of them are in Jerusalem, but the third, which actually makes the most sense to me, is in Ephesus. It's based on two lines of argument. First, from the cross, Jesus asked the Apostle John to take care of his mother. And then second, the Apostle John later was exiled from Ephesus to the island of Patmos, which means he was in Ephesus. 
The early church father, uh, Irenaeus, said John wrote his gospel and his epistles from Ephesus, and then, of course, the book of Revelation from Patmos. Well, since John was to take care of Mary, the assumption is that Mary went with him when he moved to Ephesus sometime later in the first century. Now, that doesn't prove that Mary was buried in Ephesus, but it does make as much sense as any other option. Steve says, my question is about Jonathan Kahn's book, The Return of the Gods. In our world today, are the gods having more and more influence on society and what appears to be an orchestrated, timed release of their powers on a willing society? Or are we seeing the depravity of man getting more and more away from God and his word and thus falling away from God, suffering the consequences? Well, I've, I've got to start by saying I've not read Jonathan Kahn's latest book, so I can't comment directly on it. But in answer to your question, I see more than just a rise in satanic activity at the present time, though we do know Satan is active and that he'll become even more so as the end times approach. Much of his activity was covert when our country had stronger religious and moral background. His influence is becoming more overt as our country turns increasingly away from God and his word and becomes more secular. Now, I believe there are three key temptations for humanity, and they've always revolved around the world, the flesh, and the devil. Even in Jesus' temptations in the wilderness, those were the three areas Satan tried to tempt him. In 2 Timothy 3, Paul describes the last days as a time when self-love and hedonistic pleasure are going to replace a love for God, and and self-exaltation will lead to anger, jealousy, hatred of others. In fact, he has a whole litany there of things that will characterize the last days, and they are certainly parallel to what we're seeing all around us. But let me end with a positive word of encouragement. I believe God also had Paul share the solution to the problem in 2 Timothy, and it's proclaiming God's word. You know, it's no accident that three of the greatest statements on the power and authority of God's word bracket Paul's descriptions of the last days, 2 Timothy 2.15 and 2 Timothy 3.16 and 17 and 2 Timothy 4.1 and 2. So I would encourage you to focus on God's word and then use every opportunity possible to share his word with others. Uh, We could be approaching the end times. We just don't know when God will remove the church from the earth and have the world descend into the total chaos and evil described in the book of Revelation. But while we're still here, God calls on us to make disciples and proclaim his message. God alone knows whether we're heading toward revival or judgment, but he's made it very clear what he wants us to do in the meantime. It's the land and the book from Moody Radio. Questions and answers are focused this segment with our host, Charlie Dyer. I'm John Geiger. Our next question from Marianne, who says, I have a girlfriend who recently gave me a list of verses that she believes means that it's God's will to heal. Many of them are from Exodus, some from Deuteronomy, Isaiah. And I'm sure that most of these verses are taken out of context. I tried to explain context to her, and I was unable, as it pertains to Bible interpretation. Can you help me explain this? Many thanks. Yeah, in fact, over a century ago, someone coined a phrase that really helps in this regard. A text without a context is only a pretext. By that, they meant the words, phrases, or verses pulled from their surrounding context can be used to mean something entirely opposite from what the biblical writer intended. In fact, let me give you some examples that I think illustrate the importance of punctuation and grammar and the surrounding context. Uh, In the first, uh, an individual decides to determine God's will. He opens his Bible and reads a verse at random and first opens it up and it's Matthew 27, 5, and he reads, Judas went out and hanged himself. He's a bit flustered, so he tries again. This time he opens his Bible and it's at Luke 10, 37. And Jesus said, go thou and do likewise. Well, he's not getting a little nervous. He tries one more time and this time he opens the Bible to Jesus' words in John 13, 27. What you're about to do, do quickly. 
Well, those three verses, when read out of context, could lead a person to make a real wrong decision. Right. Now, I got a second illustration for you. Jeremiah 29. Everyone loves Jeremiah 29, 11. You know, that promise, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. But most ignore the immediate context. The verses just in front of that, uh, well, that's where God told the people they were going into Babylon for 70 years. And God said, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I'll fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. In other words, a long time of judgment and exile, we're going to precede that promise of blessing. You know, verse 11 was never an ironclad promise of immediate blessing. And in that case, those who ignore the context can be disappointed when God doesn't bring the immediate blessing they're expecting. Brian asks about Peter in the Garden of Gethsemane, reminding us he stood toe-to-toe with a soldier and cut off his ear when Jesus was arrested. This might not have been wise, but it showed courage. However, a short time later, a servant girl confronted Peter, and the man denied knowing Jesus. How could this have intimidated Peter when he earlier showed such courage? You know, we're not told specifically in that text. So what follows is a little bit of a reading of all the details that are there on my part. But the most detailed record, I think, is John 18. When Jesus was first approached by Judas in the armed crowd sent by the high priest, Peter did display a great deal of courage when he drew out his sword, took a swing at the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. So what changed? Well, first, I think the rebuke by Jesus, who told Peter to put the sword away, that deflated him. And then all the disciples, and I assume that includes Peter, fled into the darkness. However, rather than continuing to run, uh, apparently Peter and John doubled back and followed the mob as they took Jesus to the high priest's house. Now, Peter is definitely out of his element. He found himself in enemy territory. He's trying to blend in so he won't be identified and arrested as one of Jesus's co-conspirators. You know, his Galilean accent definitely made him stand out whenever he spoke. And it wasn't just the servant girl who spoke to him. According to John 18, 26, Peter's third denial came when a relative of the man whose ear he had cut off said, didn't I see you with him in the garden? And I suspect that question was more of an accusation. Anyway, as I read the account, I see Peter's earlier bravado collapsing. Once Jesus was taken into custody, he's in enemy territory. He feels threatened. He feels vulnerable. And all that combined to intimidate Peter and have him deny Jesus. Craig says when reading in Joshua 12 about Israel taking over the land and defeating all these kingdoms, it seems strange that there are so many kings over these people. Based on population, it seems like they would be a mayor or a governor in our times. When I think of a king, I think of somebody ruling over millions of people. Can you give me a short explanation? Yeah, and the short explanation is your instincts are right on target. In Joshua's day, these would have been kings ruling over the equivalent of a city-state. That is, the king ruled a particular city and maybe some of the surrounding countryside. Now, some kings were more powerful or more influential than others. So, like in Joshua 11, Jabin, the king of Hatzor, actually had influence that went from Mount Hermon in the north all the way south into the Jordan Valley south of the Sea of Galilee. Hatzor was the largest city-state in Canaan at that time, and that's why all the other city-states came when he called. But I do think of those kings as being the equivalent of a, a mayor, chief of police, city council, all rolled into one. They ruled as chief monarchs, but the size of the kingdom was relatively small by our standards. Nancy asks, why did Samuel tell Saul, tomorrow you and your sons will be with me? Where was Samuel talking about? I don't understand. I looked up these verses in the Moody commentary. Nothing is said about them. Thanks for your help. Yeah, well, I take Samuel's words there to mean that by the end of the day, Saul and his sons would be in Sheol, the place of the dead. That doesn't mean necessarily that Saul would be in the same place of blessing as Samuel. 
I'm reminded of Jesus' story, you know, of the rich man and Lazarus in Luke 16. Uh, both men died, apparently were close enough that they could see and talk to one another, but the rich man was in torment in Hades while Lazarus was in a place of blessing being comforted by Abraham. Uh, in the same way, I see Samuel telling Saul that he and his family were going to be in the grave or in Sheol by the end of the following day. And though we don't know for sure, I, I do have some doubts as to whether Saul ended up in the part of Sheol that's a place of blessing. Well, that's how we're going to wrap it up for today's Q&A segment. Again, your question welcome at The Land and the Book at moody.edu. Charlie's got a devotional for you. I think it's a a place in Scripture and a, a place in Israel. He'll probably weld together for us in a way. He'll never forget it. Next. This is The Land of the Book. I'm John Geiger with our host, Charlie Dyer. We both want to say happy Canada Day if you're listening up north. And boy, if you're an American, you're looking forward to Independence Day. Charlie, there's a a tie-in somehow to uh, today's devotional in that line? Uh, There is, John. We're going to talk about freedom. All right. We'll get to that after we hear a Holy Land experience testimony. Listen to this. Hi, I'm Steve, and my most memorable Holy Land experience was uh, our time on the Galilean boat, being away from the hustle and bustle of the crowds of fellow Holy Land pilgrims. I felt like I was in a place where our Lord was 2,000 years ago, gazing at the shores of the Sea of Galilee where Jesus ministered, singing with our group, and feeling the presence of the Holy Spirit was a memory I'll never forget. My name is Jim. And I think that the impression that I've always had of the Lord Jesus Christ traveling the Holy Land and the reality of it as we have experienced it for three years, tracing the hillsides, transversing the water, I just cannot imagine the Lord Jesus Christ and his disciples covering that much ground in them three years. It just is amazing. Well, you know, the idea of being free and freedom never, ever grows old. And there's a price for all of that. But there's also a biblical perspective on all of this as well. Charlie, I'm looking forward to your devotional, and I'll let you get at it. Oh, thanks, John. Well, July is a special time of celebration for everyone in North America. As you said, July 1 is Canada Day, celebrating the anniversary of Canadian Confederation back in 1867. And of course, July 4 is Independence Day for those of us in the United States. Both countries celebrate their special day with food and fireworks and parades. Independence and the personal freedom we have as citizens of both countries is an incredible privilege. Sadly, many forget that our freedom wasn't free. It was purchased on countless battlefields, both at home and abroad. In some ways, it's appropriate in the U.S. that Memorial Day at the end of May precedes Independence Day. It helps focus on the sacrifices that brought about our freedom. In Canada, Memorial Day is the same day as Canada Day. The danger in both our countries is that we seem to be producing a generation that demands its freedom without accepting the responsibilities that accompany it. They reject the imperfections of past generations while remaining blind to their own biases and prejudices. So what can we do to put freedom in perspective this holiday season? Well, to help, I want to take us to three different times in Israel's history to look at three different portraits of freedom. 
I must warn you, though, the first two portraits are not very flattering, though they are instructive. But don't despair. We'll definitely end on a positive note. For our first portrait, you need to have your hiking boots on and laced up because we're heading into the wilderness of Sinai, and the crowd in front of us is in an ugly mood. As Numbers 11 begins, the people are complaining about all their hardships. The rabble begin to crave other food, and the people finally cry out to Moses, If only we had meat to eat. We remember the fish which we used to eat free in Egypt. The cucumbers and the melons and the leeks and the onions and the garlic. And now all we have is manna. Manna, God's heavenly provision of food, was now seen as a burden rather than a blessing. And in their distorted view of reality, life in Egypt becomes paradise with free fish and vegetables. In their lust for variety, they conveniently forgot the slavery and hardships and attempts to kill their own children. Egypt had an extreme makeover that transitioned it from a house of slavery to a magical place of wonder and blessing. One key lesson from this portrait of freedom is the importance of keeping life in perspective. It's easy to exaggerate minor problems today by comparing them with a distorted memory of an idealized past. Life wasn't necessarily better back then, it was just different. But don't exaggerate the positive and forget the negative. Keeping the past in its proper perspective will help us better appreciate the blessings we have today. And that leads to our second portrait of freedom. This time we find ourselves in the Valley of Sorek, but among the Philistines rather than the Israelites. Samson is toying with Delilah, suggesting possible causes for his supernatural power. But each time she summons the Philistines, he breaks free. Finally, she nagged him into revealing the secret of his uncut hair. After cutting his hair, she announced the coming of the Philistines. Judges 16.20 says that Samson awoke from his sleep and said, I will go out as at other times and shake myself free. But he did not know the Lord had departed from him. Freedom had come easily to Samson every time in the past, even though he played fast and loose with God's requirements for a Nazarite. He ate honey from a dead lion and drank wine to the point of drunkenness, two violations of the limitations God placed on those under a Nazarite vow. But when he told the secret of his hair and allowed Delilah to cut it off, that's when God removed his protection and supernatural strength. Samson thought he could continue to shake himself free, to experience complete freedom even while disobeying God. But sadly, he found his personal lack of self-discipline led to blindness and slavery. A lesson we need to learn from Samson is that with great ability comes great responsibility. Freedom is not absolute. There are fences God places around our freedom, but they are there to benefit us, not to enslave us. It's when we ignore those limitations that we can find ourselves enslaved and bound. Our third portrait takes us from the Old Testament to the New Testament. We find ourselves in the temple built by Herod the Great. Jesus is speaking to the people, but he's interrupted by the Pharisees who challenge his right to claim he is the light of the world. As the debate unfolds in John 8, Jesus finally turns back to those Jews who had expressed belief in him and says, If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. The somewhat fickle followers were offended at Jesus' words. They reminded him that, as Abraham's descendants, they had never been slaves of anyone. So how could he claim to set them free? 
Obviously, they understood free here as being the opposite of a slave. Jesus had to explain to them that anyone who sins is a slave to sin. And the only way to free oneself from slavery to sin was to trust in him. Or as Jesus said it, so if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Those who claimed to be Jesus' disciples now rejected him, even threatened to kill him. But why? The central issue was freedom. They were proud of their physical descent from Abraham and their freedom from physical slavery. But Jesus pushed back by saying what they really needed was freedom from sin. Though claiming physical freedom, they failed to understand that sin had them in its grasp. Spiritual freedom, true freedom, eluded them. Pause for a moment and think about that. We tend to view freedom in terms of what we see, touch, and hold. But sin's invisible tentacles reach out to hold us in their vice-like grip, and many are oblivious to the hold sin has on them. So what principle can we find in Jesus' description of freedom? How about this? Real freedom, ultimate freedom, comes when we're delivered from sin's grasp on our lives, and that comes through Jesus. Well, it's time to return to our celebration of Independence Day, or Canada Day, to our friends up north. But as you prepare to leave, don't forget these important truths. Freedom isn't found by traveling back in our memories to the good old days where we filter out the difficulties and remember a distorted view of the past. Nor is freedom found in demanding that we be allowed to do whatever pleases us, regardless of what God has said. Such freedom is temporary, and we will soon find ourselves bound in fetters we never saw coming. No, freedom, real freedom, is to experience release from the power of sin in our lives. And such life-changing freedom only comes when we submit our lives to Jesus Christ. So what about you? Are you free? Remember Jesus' words. If the Son, S-O-N, sets you free, you will be free indeed. You know, maybe you cannot honestly say you have been set free from that lifestyle of selfishness and me monster living we all fall into. The Bible word is sin. And if you'd like to talk with someone right now who can pray with you, help you receive Jesus as the leader of your life, the forgiver of your sins, I dare you to pick up your phone and call 888-NEED-HIM. There's no cost, no pressure, no embarrassing questions. It's you driving the conversation at 888-NEED-HIM. Hey, we'd love to get your thoughts about the program. Email us anytime at thelandandthebook at moody.edu. For our host, Charlie Dyer, I'm John Geiger saying thanks so much for listening to The Land and the Book. We're a production of Moody Radio, a ministry of Moody Bible Institute. Hope you have a great day and a great Independence Day weekend. <laughs>